definitely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. We're looking at access to education, especially for minority populations, and especially in light of some of the financial changes that have been out there. Is there a chance that the federal student loan program will make it easier for minority populations to end up accessing education? That's one of the things they look at at the Education Trust. They're a group nationwide with a New York State chapter that does a lot of work on educational equity. They generate all sorts of reports across the entire nation, looking at each state and how well they are allowing access to education. And I want to take just a moment and talk to them a little bit about financial access. Brittany Williams is here. She's Senior Policy Analyst for Higher Education with the Education Trust. And Dr. Kayla Elliott is also here. She's the Director of Higher Education Policy for the Education Trust. Ladies, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. I, I want to look at specifically what the Biden loan forgiveness program might mean in terms of educational access. Can we make an argument? Have either of you or the Education Trust made the argument that affordability is part of why educational attainment in communities of color? Um, I can begin. Um, this is Brittany. And um, in terms of educational access, um, while the student debt cancellation is a start, um, we believe that there is more work to be done, um, particularly around affordability. Um, at the Education Trust, we have had conversations that include uh, continuing to support for canceling at least 50K of federal student debt. Um, but in addition to that, um, we believe that policymakers must, um, in absence of total broad-based debt cancellation, um, make significant improvements to the income-driven repayment plans. Um, and in addition to that, uh, make college more affordable by doubling the Pell Grant and creating federal and state partnerships uh, that make public college debt-free. And so, again, while this is a start, the debt cancellation um, is an absolute um, piece of the puzzle. There are other pieces that need uh, to be put in place for this act to actually be some reform in higher ed accessibility. Is financial ability to pay the number one issue in accessibility? I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that it is the number one issue in terms of access. I think there are, there are a number of very real issues for every student, right? Um, whether that is the ability to pay, whether that is um, the ability to navigate being a first-generation student and understanding application processes, 
there are also a number of barriers in admissions put in place by institutions that keep a number of students out, whether that is undocumented students, whether that is students who have um, uh, interactions with the justice system um, and are discouraged, either not allowed to apply or discouraged from applying. There are a number of, of barriers to admission and access. Um, and affordability is absolutely a major one. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go on record saying it's the number one without, uh, without doing the research first. All right. And I also imagine, too, because of the way the process works, uh, obviously, before you have to figure out whether you can afford it, you have to get that admission. And so, so chronologically, it, it falls further down in the uh, procedure. Yes and no. So I would think that the cost of, co- the cost of college actually discourages those, many people from applying, right, or believing that it is a reality or attainable or affordable for them, right? So I, I think that might work for some, saying I'm going to apply and then figure out if I can afford it once I see – uh, my financial aid package and hopefully get a financial aid package and an award letter that I actually understand that tells me what grants, what loans, what scholarships, and what the difference is. Because um, we know that standard uh, financial aid letters are not standardized from institution to institution and that we call it an award letter, but we know that they're not all awards and rewards and gifts. We know that much of that package can be loans for some students, right? So even the clarity and understanding the cost of college um, once you have been admitted um, isn't always there. So the forgiveness measure, it sounds like you're saying, and I, I get what you said earlier about the need for other programs, it sounds as if the forgiveness measure is not going to do a heck of a lot for increasing access. Am I right? You got to think about who borrowers are. A lot of these borrowers are parents of college students, are parents of students who may go to college one day, right? Um, the average, the, the oldest millennials are 40 now, right? Um, and so we are thinking not just about our own access, but about a family's access and what this is doing for a family's wealth. We know that this measure has moved a number of African Americans in particular from negative wealth to positive wealth. So I definitely think that if we are talking about is this an access program, we wouldn't call it that, right? Like this is about this is about debt cancellation. This is about addressing a harm that was done, addressing bad debt, addressing loans that were built poorly, um, and programs that were supposed to pro- provide relief that did not. This is about that for sure. But that relief will absolutely result in access for students who owe balances and now can return to school. For borrowers who are thinking about, um, like I said, returning to school or the education of their spouse, their children, um, I do think that it creates access in a number of ways. What else needs to be done, not so much on the financial front, but overall in order to ensure better access for minorities? I think students of color face a number of barriers. Um, I do think we need better uh, financial aid packages, better understanding, better clarity on the actual cost of college, right? Like being very clear in financial aid award letters, being very clear in um, financial aid counseling about the cost of college. I think that there's an onus on the institutions, but also on state government and the federal government to standardize some of that um, and make it easier for families to understand um, both the cost of college and how much support that they're receiving from um, federal, state, and institutional sources. I think that's one for sure. Um, there are a number of practices, like I said before, around admissions and applications that institutions can um, put, put aside 
one of those that's both access and um, that's like an access and affordability issue is application fees, right? Like, so students who cannot afford to, uh, to pay the application fee to your college um, are, are meeting a very real barrier. So doing away with practices that keep students out, whether that is application fees, whether that is, um, as I said before, various students that are asked about their history, whether that is their, their uh, criminal, potential cr criminal um, background, or their citizenship status. Um, there are just a number of things that institutions are asking or considering in admissions um, decisions that are not germane to whether or not a student will be successful um, that keep them out. Is this something that can and should be addressed through legislation, or is this something where you can just encourage colleges and admissions people to do more of the right thing? I think access can absolutely be addressed through both federal and state level legislation, right? So we see a number of states um, who are using their state funding systems to require and encourage institutions using their financial contribution every year, their, their financial allocation every year. So a number of states across the country use what's called outcomes-based funding, and there are many within that that use enrollment metrics to say, we will fund you based on how diverse your institution becomes, right? So we know that these students may, may require additional support. So if you have a particularly large or growing population of Black, Latino, um, in some states, they have American uh, Indigenous students. In Hawaii, of course, it's Hawaiian students. And so each state um, tries to, many states, I would say, tailor that population based on that, tailor the student population that they're encouraging based on the population of their state to say, like, we need to see an increase in these communities of color. And so we're going to encourage institutions and make sure that institutions have the financial support that they need to support those students, right? And so that's one state level, um, many one state level policy. States also have attainment goals that break down um, where populations are by race. So they say, if our state is going to be competitive, if, if our state is going to have the career fields um, that we need, if we're going to have doctors, if we're going to have primary care physicians in rural areas, if we're going to have these um, career fields, if we're going to have um, those who work in tech, those who, if we're going to have that, right, this is what our state needs to be successful. We need this number of degrees by this year. A lot of folks have said 60% of our population needs to have um, some level of post-secondary attainment, um, whatever that is. And we know in order to get to that goal, this is how it breaks down based on where all the racial groups in our state currently are, right? And so breaking that down and telling each institution where they fall and where they need to improve for the state to reach its overall goal, right? So I absolutely think that there already are, but there are absolutely more things and more policies that states can put into place that encourage institutional behavior, for sure. Define the scope of the problem. Uh, how big of a barrier is there overall to access? Uh, are there numbers that can illustrate how many African Americans are not being admitted? Sure. So I would refer to Ed Trust's work. Um, we have what's called the State Equity Report Card. Um, as well as a report from a few years ago called Broken Mirrors. And then the Lumina Foundation also has a really good resource um, and tool. It's a state by state, and all of those resources are state by state breakdowns that tell you by state um, the black population and the percentage of the population that has a degree, um, and then the gap 
needed for that state to reach its attainment goal, right? It also tells you, it doesn't tell you what the barriers are. Um, that will require a lot more analysis outside of just like attainment numbers. But I do, we do know what it is. And I think that's actually really powerful when you start with data because you then have, you know where it is that you need to go. You know how far, um, uh, you know how far that you need to go. And then you can start looking into very specifically the barriers in your state. Um, we've been doing some work called the state equity audit and have been able to work with a very small number of states to do just that, right? To look at very specifically one issue and to dig into the why. I think every state's why is very different. Every community's why is very different. Um, so if, you're, if you are very specifically looking at um, African-American males in the state of Florida, that is going to be very different than even Latino males in Georgia, right? Um, but digging in deeper and getting into the why once you already know who, right, because you have that data and you understand how many more Latino males need to have some form of post-secondary attainment in order for your state to reach their goal. But you also understand what that means for families, what, you, what that means for generating generational wealth um, and just the ability to have access to the types of jobs that provide health insurance and benefits. Um, and knowing that a high school diploma no, no longer does that, I absolutely think that um, there's a role for states to play um, in, in ensuring that institutions are doing their part. I've looked at that report just a little bit, and, and it looks like New York State gets low remarks for what you folks call ESEA, Equitable Social, Emotional, and Academic Development Plan. Uh, you're critical basically about how much implementation there is. The goal is there, but the implementation plans in New York State are weak. That, however, is just New York. In the entire report, there's really a range here of actions on discipline, on engagement, on anything that can contribute to or, or really uh, restricts educational access for people of color. I think what's also a pretty large range is the investment in higher education. And so a lot of those initiatives require um, resources, right? And we've seen states that are willing to put the resources into their funding systems, uh, the outcomes-based funding systems that I mentioned earlier, states that are willing to not only include metrics around students of color, include metrics around low-income students, but to provide premiums, right, and to ensure that there is both an incentive for institutions um, to enroll and support these students, but also the resources needed that they have to enroll and support those students, right? And so I do think, like, what goes in is very different, but, and so what comes out is very different as well. So I think more states seem to have the tax revenue, but also seem to have um, a better interest in, in supporting higher education and understanding what it means for the future of, of their citizens and for their state um, economically and socially, right, and in terms of families um, and their communities, for sure. So for sure there's a wide range um, across states, um, and it's indicative of a number of things, whether that's spending, whether that is um, – uh, just the value that they might place on college or whether that is just the restraints that they have um, around getting things done. We know that it is harder um, in some states than others, for sure. And a couple times you've, you've uh, mentioned the idea of generational wealth. Uh, forgive me, when I was thinking of this conversation, I was thinking primarily only of educational attainment, but I also now understand what you're saying about how paying for education can hurt me and my children eventually. 
discuss that a little further if you can. Yeah, I'm going to kick it to Brittany, actually. In terms of um, the correlation between educational attainment and generational wealth, um, I can also direct you back to um, just a body of work that ATRES has been doing around how black borrowers have been experiencing student loan debt particularly. Uh, we talk about how um, for black borrowers in terms of carrying student loan debt, um, how it has affected the generational wealth and, and as uh, Dr. Elliott mentioned earlier, around being in the negative. And so if we couple that with the um, the president's announcement around uh, the debt cancellation, you can see how helping these families, helping helping uh, the families lessen the burden of debt will now open up opportunities for them to be able to, um, you know, pursue education, attainment, and things as such. So in our uh, report that Brittany and some of our other colleagues have been working on a series around Black student debt, um, as Brittany referred to, like a lot of we spoke with we spoke with over a hundred black borrowers and then surveyed over a thousand. Um, and what we found was startling, right? But also very reasonable. We people who have foregone medical care, people who cannot afford medical care, people who have foregone buying a home, um, a number of things, uh, those who have gone into default and can no longer access credit when they are traveling for work, access credit for, um, or like their credit history for renting an apartment, just a number of ways that student loans absolutely impact like your ability to provide for your family, right? And to, to provide for your family's most basic needs, but also to then even begin to think about building wealth, right? And as I said, a number of uh, black borrowers with this move, with this cancellation, have moved from negative wealth to positive wealth, right, with just this one move. And that is something that, um, that you know, we, we have to take a pause um, and celebrate those things. We know that it is not enough. Um, we know that we will continue fighting for more cancellation, for more, um, uh, and, more and new and different ways to address affordability for current students. Um, but I do think Brittany also had a great, Brittany has a great report um, coming out around student parents and uh, their affordability. And we'd love for her to share a little bit about that. So I think there's, there's an argument there around like what we've been saying throughout this conversation. Students have very different needs um, and that keep them from accessing and affording higher ed and parenting students definitely have some of those unique needs as well. A cookie cutter is not going to do it. It's got to look at all the problems that individuals have and then solve all of those problems on an individual level, it sounds like you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, no, it's knowing who's in your state. It's all right. who's in your state. If you have more parenting students, if you have more undocumented students, how are you changing policy to get them to and through college, for sure. All right. Then, Brittany, tell me a little bit more about the specific challenges faced by student parents. Yes. And um, if I can back up a little bit, if that's okay, I also want to add to our conversation around um, our black borrowers um, work that Interest has been doing. We also have a piece around how black women experience uh, student loan debt. And there is um, just copious amounts of data around how in terms of generational wealth, we can even take it a step further and talk about the racial wealth gap that is experienced by black borrowers, and particularly in this piece, 
with black women, um, how we have uh, fewer resources to repay student debt. And so when we're talking about generational wealth or, you know, just a family unit, sometimes the, not sometimes, a lot of times the position that the borrower may hold in the family also may weigh differently from, um, you know, one family to the next. And it's detailed uh, a little bit more in, in that student debt piece uh, with black women experiences, but that's also, you know, just a piece to highlight as well. All right. And, and students specifically, what, what sort of obstacles are they facing in your, in your upcoming report? Um, so in the parenting student report, um, and we have already prefaced this, there's a little bit out that I can um, share with you as well, but um, student parents, again, when we think of the family unit and the makeup, parenting students have to navigate coursework, um, oftentimes child care, um, access to child care is, an, is a huge issue as well as trying to afford uh, their college degree. And those barriers faced by student parents um, look different than, than their non-parenting peers. Um, uh, particularly in the report, we talk about how student parents borrow more than non-parenting mothers, and particularly single mothers borrow the most. Um, and if we drill down the data by race, black student parents borrow more than any other racial or ethnic group. Wow, that's huge. I, I, I understand it, and I, I realize why it's the case, but I wouldn't have necessarily thought about it. Well, if we, when we think about this, this student population on campus particularly, you also have to think about the expense of, of raising children mm. as well as pursuing a degree. And if we, you know, in, in the economic climate that we're in, we've seen how childcare cost is skyrocketing, you know, um, almost, you know, Every month in in the news, we're seeing something coming out around how childcare cost is getting higher and higher. And then for students who um, also may have barriers with accessing quality childcare, that just raises another issue around um, affordability in college. What can be done? I you alluded to it. I think at the very beginning of the conversation that that the loan forgiveness is the first step, and there are other things that have to follow. But how is it that you make those other things follow? What uh, What's still to come? I think that it is work done at the federal level, the state level, the, the institutions. I think the onus is on stakeholders across the gamut. Um, and I think that if policymakers, particularly this does not want to see the student debt crisis be as bad as it has been in years to come, we need to act holistically. And so that holistic picture looks like doubling the Pell Grant, creating the federal and state partnerships to make public college debt free and um, making the improvements, significant improvements to the income driven repayment plan to make those monthly payments for those borrowers that will still hold a balance, they need to be able to um, pay off those balances. That's another highlight from the uh, Black Borrowers Experience uh, piece that Etrus has. The borrowers reported that they are having trouble even making the monthly payments on the balances that they hold. And, and this will be true for those who still have hold balances after their forgiveness. And so there has to be um, holistic work done 
across stakeholders, across the policymakers from the federal, from the state, at the local level uh, to support higher education reform. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank Thanks you for, for having us. And that's Brittany Williams, Senior Policy Analyst for Higher Education, and Kayla Elliott, the Director of the Higher Education Policy for the Education Trust. They're a national organization with a New York State chapter that looks at equity issues in education. They've been active in litigation and obviously some of the advocacy you heard them speak of there. Coming up next, we've got a quick change of the schedule, but it's going to be a very interesting program. Dr. Anthony Neal will be here from the Political Science and Africana Studies Department at Buffalo State College, looking at the issues of the black voting population. Much more to come. Stay with us. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, Chautauqua, An American Narrative. Chautauqua is a different approach to getting away from it all. It's art, it's education, economic growth, it's current events, religion, recreation. Chautauqua, an American narrative, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members. And from Borderland Festival, an outdoor music and arts festival happening September 17th and 18th. More than 20 bands on three stages over two days, featuring Portugal the Man, The Flaming Lips, Keller Williams' Grateful Gospel, and many more. Everything takes place outdoors on the scenic grounds of Knox Farm State Park. Artisans, craft brewers, and culinary experiences complete the festival. Tickets at borderlandfestival.com. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit wbfo.org to sign up today. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning and welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran and very pleased to be joined by Dr. Anthony Neal. Professor of Political Science and Africana Studies at Buffalo State. Dr. Neal, thanks for joining us this morning. Good to be here, Jay. Thanks. So much to talk about, uh, both on a local and national level, obviously. Why don't we work out nationally, and then we'll work our way back into the local scene here in Buffalo. Uh, But first, let's just take a a, a national, kind of a broad issue here. Here we are in the year uh, 2022, a couple of years off from a, a national election, but also a midterm election coming up here. When it comes to the black voter, I mean, I don't know if we can necessarily speak monolithically about it, but what are you seeing as the key issues when it comes to the black voting public nationally? Ironically, uh, you, you really can't speak of it as a monolith, 
but we do know that it seems like 90, 90 plus percent of the black vote has typically gone to the Democratic Party. Even though you do have some Republican candidates and some African Americans who are you know, going over to the Republican side, and even under the MAGA side, for the most part, uh, uh, black voters are with the Democratic Party. Even, but the question then becomes uh, turnout. Are they energized enough to actually go out and vote uh, as they were in uh, 2020 and 2018, for example? And that is, of course, always a good question. When it comes to midterms, of course, it, that's always really a, a big part of the, the concern. Midterms don't generally uh, spark that type of interest. What, if any, are the issues that might be bringing black voters out to the polls this fall? Uh, typically, as, as you stated, Jay, the midterms do not uh, have that much interest, and that hasn't bowled well for the incumbent party. I know uh, Bill Clinton lost big during the midterms, and of course uh, Barack Obama lost big. Uh, Joe Biden, however, there's a question mark. Uh, early on, uh, Republicans were seen as taking over uh, control of, of Congress, but as of late, with you know various Supreme Court rulings and. The, of course, the investigations of the former president just still on the horizon and still going on. Some are starting to say that it seems like uh, the tide may be turning slowly toward the Democrats holding on to holding on to Congress. That most certainly is an, an interesting development in that regard, for sure. Um, but there are other, looking across the nation, some really interesting voters that uh, votes or elections that are involving black candidates. And we're going to go to your native state of Georgia to talk just a little bit about that. I'm interested in the governor's race, Stacey Abrams, who, of course, has become such a luminary uh, on the political scene here in recent years, running for governor. How is that shaping up right now, do you understand? Stacey Abrams is an excellent campaigner, and she knows her politics. But once again, it, it looked like it could be a, a close race. We're not certain in which uh, direction it, it will go in. But right now, it's it's not certain that the incumbent will hold on. But uh, Stacey Abrams is a consummate uh, campaigner. Just as in, in the Senate race between uh, Republican Herschel Walker and Democrat uh, War Senator Warnock, who is the incumbent who achieved that uh, seat uh, the last election, but had to run again because it was a special. Uh, he was uh, came in on in a special situation, so therefore he didn't get the full six years. But this election is for the full six years in that particular seat. Are you surprised at Herschel Walker's ascendancy in that uh, Georgia election? I am surprised. I have somewhat, uh, I not really follow Georgia politics you know, that closely to even know that Herschel had become politically ascendant, if you will. I do remember his days as a college player and also with the Cowboys, but uh, after that, I somewhat lost track of him. But, and particularly, I didn't know he was you know, uh, ascendant in Republican politics as well. And I find it, uh, listening to some of his views, I find them quite 
amazing his views and in in my way of thinking i don't see how the election could be close based on uh, views and outlook and policy issues since warnock is hands down far away uh, uh, the more the better candidate but however as others have stated and i believe you've made mention to me sometimes that the party uh, people simply vote party regardless as who the candidate might be Interesting, though, you do talk about uh, some of his views and some of his uh, policy positions. Uh, how do they reflect or how do they perhaps work in opposition to what has been um, perhaps the, the standard platform or the platform of, of progress uh, for uh, black politics in, in uh, the United States? Yeah, just as you stated, the, uh, black Americans are not a, a monolith. But we're constantly trying to figure out exactly what is the black perspective and what constitutes the black perspective and, and what uh, is of political interest to uh, people of color uh, in the electorate. Herschel Walker would, would make the case or make the argument that as a Republican, he is expressing diverse views and he would make the argument that uh, African Americans need not be dependent on government and, and should uh, move more toward independence, entrepreneurship, if you will, moving away from government dependency uh, as the typical argument against black support for the Democratic Party. On the other hand, uh, Warnock would say that you need government intervention because some of the problems are just that massive that uh, uh, an individual or group can't solve them uh, on their own. And most certainly uh, become familiar with uh, that that discussion for sure. Um, it, it is interesting to, to see somebody of Herschel Walker's notoriety, though, uh, embracing uh, that particular policy. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, well, he, yeah, he has celebrity, but... It, is that celebrity being put to the best interest of an African-American electorate? What, what I like to say is if you take someone's views and you follow them to their logical conclusion, where, where does that logical conclusion lead? Is it something that will advance uh, the African-American community or hinder? For example, with the Supreme Court recent uh, you know, overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, and Clarence Thomas, who is the uh, African-American male justice, now that we have Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson on the court, his views are ultra-conservative. He's probably, probably the most conservative uh, justice on the court. And he hasn't seen a, a piece of civil rights legislation yet that he would not overturn if given the opportunity as an African-American, however, but his rulings and his opinions and his decisions tend to go in the opposite direction. For example, when in Roe v. Wade, he, he did not stop there. He's the one who issued the declaration that we also need to consider other uh, right to privacy issues as well. Uh, interesting that we're getting it, getting to it on this national level here. We're talking with uh, Dr. Anthony Neal of uh, Buffalo State, uh, uh, professor of political science and Africana studies. Uh, Dr. Neal, um, when it comes to these national issues, um, Joe Biden, of course, 
narrowly won the election on a on a, a on a lot of key electoral battleground states, of course, and a lot of that can be attributed to the black vote going in his favor. Is he living up to his promise uh, when it came to uh, uh, wooing the black vote in 2020? From my assessment of it, as you know, uh, uh, when he, particularly when he received uh, the endorsement of the uh, uh, the congressman uh, in terms of in South Carolina to go on and climb and turn turn everything around. Um, many African Americans uh, Af- uh, are are basically satisfied with his uh, decision to to address student loans. Many other African American students that I've encountered here on campus have talked about that as an issue, but in looking at Biden as a whole, it is not so much that his policies, his current policies, but his uh, gaffes that they've noticed, uh, racial gaffes, and I can't uh, repeat all of them, but they come up with some that, you know, he says some things that aren't quite, uh, that are a little offsetting to the African-American electorate, but they're not racist per se, but they do somewhat tend to offend to a certain extent the more sensitive listener to some of the gaps that uh, that he's made. And that creates a cooling effect in terms of turnout uh, for Joe Biden. That's when people have time to sit and reflect on on, on uh, his statements. And uh, do you have that sense? I mean, we actually talked about this a little bit on the phone before we went on the air, that there is... It's not a widespread enthusiasm for President Biden at this stage, not just talking about black voters, but voters overall. Uh, you, as somebody who, who's standing here two years out from a national election, uh, is it in the Democratic Party's best interest to be looking for a new candidate right now? Or, uh, I mean, he, his was such a delicate coalition in 2020. You wonder if, uh, if, it could, if somebody else would be able to muster the same in two years. I actually believe it would be a mistake to replace, to attempt to replace Biden at the head of the ticket. National polls still see him defeating a Republican candidate, uh, you know, in the aggregate. So he's still, even though his overall numbers are down for his own uh, uh, approval rating in the in the head-to-head national election with the Republican candidate, uh, as of now, he's still the best option that the Democrats have. Even though it's it's not the same level of enthusiasm as Democrats had for, let's say, uh, Obama, he's still the best thing that the Democrats have at the moment. Until at such time as another Democrat could, you know. Uh, reach that type of national name recognition and have people understand exactly who they are and what their policies are. I also find that um, when we talked about the black vote, uh, the black vote is also not that enthusiastic about the vice president, Kamala Harris, as well. Really? Some some argue that uh, when she was a the attorney general uh, in uh, uh, in the state of California that uh, that some of her policies were 
were led to a higher incarceration rate of uh, African Americans and that they didn't think she was that sympathetic to black issues at, at that particular time. So her numbers are not exactly the highest either in terms of black support for the ticket. It is interesting you mentioned that. I most certainly recall hearing that during the primaries when she was running for president uh, prior to the 2020 election. Uh, it, it seemed yeah. like a lot of that didn't linger once it got into, she was on the national ticket as the vice president, but you're saying uh, that, that that is, uh, it still does kind of, uh, is is attached to her and that black voters are I not think, necessarily satisfied with her. You know, I think when you look at that particular situation, if we go back to that time when she rolled out her candidacy, she had the best rollout of any of the Democratic uh, politicians. There were about 20,000 people who turned out for her announcement that she was running for office. However, it seems like from that day when she announced uh, up until and during the debates, the, the bottom fell out of her candidacy. I think what saved her was her national uh, recognition, uh, in fact, is, uh, Biden, I believe, felt comfortable with having her on the ticket. And he also wanted to uh, shore up the constituency of black females for the Democratic Party. It's interesting that to get into this part of the discussion, if you don't mind, we can continue just a little bit on, on Kamala Harris in that regard. So... You're seeing a, a weakness, perhaps. There is, there, there is, obviously that that's that um, that idea that you know if she she's the vice president, she would uh, be able to perhaps step in very well as the president. But you're you're maybe suggesting that as a national candidate, uh, if in fact it'll, President Biden was to run again, or perhaps moving even further down the road, another six years from now, you're saying that maybe she doesn't have uh, the strength she's because not, it, right. Right, she's not assuring, I don't believe, uh, to replace Biden. For we all know, you know, the worst case scenario is something were to happen to him health wise. She is no doubt she is an able uh intellect who can step in and do the job and I think do the job well as president. There's, it seems like there's a different quality that's needed to campaign and a different quality that's needed to actually govern. I think she would be excellent at governing. Uh, She's not the best campaigner, but she would be excellent at governing. So you're saying that 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 time from that moment that she introduced herself as a presidential candidate, the enthusiasm that was there to the time when she really did not do very well at all in the primaries, was she just you don't think that she has what it takes, or at least at that time, that well, type of experience? She has what it takes to govern, but not to campaign. Yeah. She's not the most enthusiastic campaigner. And per, uh, I I was a little surprised, too. Uh, I was supportive of her. I had you know, heard about her, but I had never really heard her give you know, succession of speeches or what have you. And she's was not the orator that I expected her to be. It's not that she's not good, it's just that her level of oration, I think, was not up to par as I thought. And, but I have no doubt when, you, when you've seen her sit uh, in her Senate seat uh, on the uh, Judiciary Committee and the question that she asks 
in her probing intellect, there's no doubt that she has what it takes to actually be president. But like I, like I stated, it's getting that enthusiasm up is, uh, that's the hard part. Yeah, I guess maybe history does show us that it's not always the biggest intellect that becomes president of the United States, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, Dr. Anthony Neal from Buffalo State with us here, uh, professor of Pol- political science and Africana studies. You know, it gives us, obviously you follow, as a political scientist, you follow uh, the national picture for sure and uh, and how things work in terms of polling. But you also have access to an interesting focus group students at Buffalo State College what what oh, yeah. are you what are you getting from them what are what are what are insights are you getting about the the younger uh, person when it comes to to politics and I, specifically when uh, you know I would be really interested in hearing when it comes to black students for sure in all, in all honesty is a lack of excitement a lack of enthusiasm for uh, people who are in leadership today um, it says it's as if they and ironically they're focusing on policies that were in existence probably before they were born, but apparently they've been hearing about things the negativity like Joe Biden and the crime bill, for example, and as I mentioned to you, Kamala Harris and her track record uh, uh, in California which predates their entrance onto the national scene, but they are basing their current um, assessment of these candidates based on past policies, and perhaps more so than the policies that are being generated today. Interesting, though, when when you look at those policy issues, the, the reason is that the policies that are, people are addressing today are not race-specific policies. They are more general policies that benefit um, all communities, not just targeting of one community, but all communities. And sometimes if you don't explicitly uh, pass a voter rights bill, if you don't explicitly pass legislation that clearly seems to focus on uh, black issues, then sometimes it's missed that the policies that are being uh, passed by Biden actually benefit community as a whole. For example, uh, since Biden has been president with some of the government uh, monies paid out to individuals uh, and what have you across the country, it stated that we looked around and child poverty has actually reduced, been reduced uh, since Biden has been in office. And that benefits everyone. It doesn't scream black, it doesn't scream white, but it does benefit everyone across the board. But because it's not, say, specifically black, sometimes it's missed that it is a policy that can be beneficial to the African-American community. Interesting also in your answer there, you talked about some of the, the voting uh, rights acts uh, and legislation that uh, have had uh, various levels of success across the country. Um, just getting into that, and as you follow it, is voting access, is it as under siege as it, um, as it can be portrayed sometimes um, in the news? I, I believe it is. Uh, and just looking at Stacey Abrams, you know, listening to her, she will tell you point blank that 
is definitely the attempts at voter suppression are very real. Uh, and the laws in Georgia, Georgia is one of the states that stand out in terms of making it a crime to even pass out water to someone standing in a long line on a hot day waiting to vote. That voter suppression is definitely very real. And we see also across the country um, some of the MAGA Republicans that are winning these local offices who are uh, you know, election deniers, and, and it seems like they're setting up a situation where if they do not like the results, then they won't, won't sanction the results, won't sign off on them, even if the people have voted in a certain way. So it's definitely real. It, it, it is it is it's frightening, as a matter of fact, when, when you look at uh, some of the things that are happening to uh, voter rights and the restrictions that are being put in place. And beyond restrictions, you, people are acquiring office and change, changing the rules to even say that if we don't like the election, uh, we simply won't certify it. And just to maybe go a little bit further on this and to tap into some of your, your knowledge and experience and research, voting, we know what voting is like here in Western New York, New York State, and you know, and beyond the idea that write-in ballots and things like that, and that we saw a lot of in 2020, in other parts of the country, it can be very difficult to vote. Right? I mean, there are just the the, the polling locations aren't as uh, prominent, aren't as available. Drop as- drop-off places, particularly in states like. The red states, to be honest about it, Texas is notorious as well for going in the opposite direction, whereas even if you have more people, uh, if Democrats are registering more people, then the, a bottleneck is being created to make those people who are registered to vote make it more difficult for them to vote. Uh, souls to the polls and all these type uh election actions that were used are being curtailed just to make it more difficult. So voter turnout and enthusiasm for the Democrats or for Biden or for the Democratic candidates is is very much uh, important because if you have these bottlenecks being created, these barriers being created, if you have a significant enough turnout or a strong enough turnout, it can overcome uh, voter suppression efforts, but if the turnout is small to begin with, then it makes voter suppression much easier. We're talking with Dr. Anthony Neal of Buffalo State College uh, today about politics. We've been talking a lot on the national level here, Dr. Neal, but interested to hear about what you have seen here locally over the last four months since May 14th. Uh, obviously, the community rocked by this but just some general impressions that you have taken over the last couple of months here uh, and what has been happening in Buffalo. I find uh, it's on two levels. On one level, I believe that there has been a lot of community outpouring of support uh, and recognition of what transpired uh, at the Tops Market and how it affects the community as a whole. But I don't believe it has translated 
that much into the electorate. I think the electorate still is very much where it is and where it has been. And, and here in West New York, even the issue of guns is still a divisive issue, irrespective of what transpired on on May 14th. So, yes, it's community support, community recognition from the you know the, the Buffalo Bills on to college teams, what have you, or recognizing what happened. But in terms of the electorate, the electorate still seems to be somewhat uh, divisive mirroring what's happening on the national scene as well. So uh, just to expand on that, to clarify, what you're suggesting is is that though there's a lot of individual empathy, I will utilize that perhaps term, maybe not the, the best term, but at the same time, though, when it comes to fighting, uh, uh, building up a coalition of interest when it comes to trying to change policy through the electorate, you're saying that uh, the policies, and you're not just talking about necessarily the city of Buffalo, but uh, this Erie County, Western New York, uh, more. No, Erie it, County, West New York, yes. The, the, the politics, the divisiveness, the Democrat-Republican split uh, still remains the same. I don't see, I don't see a coalescing around uh, issues, major issues that could overcome that particular split. But having said that, uh, it probably bodes well for the, the Democrats and the National, maybe looking at HOCO on the statewide ticket, uh, because it's probably, I believe, Democrats want a majority, particularly here in Erie County, in terms of you know, voter registration. Uh, so... Democrats will still turn out and put Democrats in power where Democrats are able, but I don't see any a Democrat, for example, you know, running successfully, let's say, in the 23rd uh, district. I don't, I don't see people coalescing that much to, to keep that from being a safe seat for Republicans. Um. My uh, colleague uh, Dave Debo likes to ask a question toward the end of these uh, conversations, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Dr. Neal. Um, what does Buffalo need? What does Buffalo need? We, we know the, the problems of segregation. We know the problems of poverty, and almost certainly worth discussing and continuing to repeat. But at the same time, what does Buffalo need? Well, coming from Atlanta, I've always stated that Buffalo needs uh, dynamic, bold leadership. And I, I address that in the issue of, for example, Maynard Jackson, the mayor of uh, Buffalo, when he stated that the new uh, Hartsville Airport would not be built. We know that's one of the busiest hubs in the country now, that the airport would not be built unless there was community input and to the whole community was allowed to benefit from the building of that airport. And it created a lot of uh, black entrepreneurship. For example, now I know it's outside the purview of the mayor of the city of Buffalo, but the new stadium that's being built, who's, who's going to stay, stand up and say that this new stadium must have wide community input and participation from all sectors of the community of West New York, 
before the stadium gets built. I don't feel that type of dynamic leadership. I believe there is an Erie County legislator who's leaning along those lines, but in terms of strong, dynamic, matter-of-fact leadership that says this is how it must be uh, from a strong negotiating position, I I don't... uh, I think that's somewhat absent. You know, Dr. Neal, I, I, I have to give you credit here. I think you just uh, gave us a, a, a topic for a future show here on uh, Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for that. But it is, I mean, not, just uh, kidding aside, though, that that is a great comparison, right? I mean, the idea that that, that airport in Atlanta has, <laughs> I mean, everybody's flown through it, right? We know how significant it is, but you're saying it only happened because somebody, it, it only benefited the community because somebody stepped up and made it, uh, made it happen, basically. It said that it, it, unless it does, it will not happen. Unless it happens for all, it will not happen, period. Well, very good. Uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony Neal, I'm so pleased to have this conversation with you. I hope we can continue it, and uh, perhaps maybe you can come down and and visit us here at our studios at that time. Yeah, I would like that. Dr. Anthony Neal, our guest here on Buffalo What's Next this morning, and we do appreciate his uh, stepping in here. We uh, were scheduled to talk with uh, Kevin Gaughan uh, about uh, the um, uh, the food equity roundtable that he's scheduled here, a summit, I should say, that he's scheduled here uh, coming up in, in October. On October 12th, the Food Equity Summit will have Kevin gone on at a different time. Uh, most certainly looking forward to that conversation as well. We wanted to thank Dr. Anthony Neal for being with us here today on Buffalo What's Next. A lot of conversation there. Uh, hopefully you did catch, catch it. We talked a little more nationally, perhaps, uh, in this particular conversation because it did come up at the last minute to a certain extent, but Dr. Anthony Neal most certainly uh, gave us uh, plenty of information early Earlier, uh, we had uh, Dave Debo on with uh, uh, with uh, his program earlier today, including Brittany Williams, uh, talking uh, about some different issues, including access to education. We're, of course, going to have more for you on Buffalo What's Next as we continue to move forward. And we always invite you for your input as well. You can email us at uh, news at WBFO.org. Also, of course, you can send along uh, information on the uh, social media platforms as well here at WBFO. And we look forward to hearing from you on that as well here on Buffalo Buffalo What's Next as we continue. More to come, of course, every weekday here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, W. OLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station in Western New York. And this is member-supported WBFO. Thank you very much for joining us today on Buffalo What's Next.